This podcast is produced by Secure World Foundation, an endowed private operating foundation that promotes cooperative solutions for space sustainability and the peaceful uses of outer space. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial license. For more information, please visit swfound.org. We are a private operating foundation that focuses on the sustainable use of outer space. And we are very excited about today's panel uh, for Asia and Space Cooperation and Competition. This event is being co hosted by the Secure World Foundation and the Arms Control, Disarmament, and International Security Program at the University of Illinois at Urbana Champaign, Arrakis. We have an excellent panel today with a tremendous amount of expertise in Asian space powers. For the topic like cooperation and competition, the panel will be looking at whether or not that is indeed the case, are they cooperating, are they competing, or is it some mix of both or neither? As well, we'll be looking at how the regional security dynamics uh, focus on the Asian space powers affects U.S. interests and U.S. space capabilities, or even if it does. Finally, we'll be looking at other ways in which to engage Asian space powers. Before I turn the mic over to our panel, I'd like to talk briefly about a few Secure World events that may help set the context for today's discussion. As you may be aware, Secure World co-organized a meeting on space, science, and security in New Delhi in January 2011. A couple of our, actually, a lot of our panel was there as well. And a major point of discussion that arose during the conference was about whether an Asian space race existed, or if the wording was imposing a U.S.-centric view on the complex regional security dynamics. This issue was also brought up during Track 1.5 discussions that we co-hosted between the United States and India this May in Singapore on space situational awareness sharing and overall space cooperation. And more information on both of these events can be found on our website, swfound.org. Some highlights from the Singapore discussion that may be relevant in looking how the United States interacts or tries to cooperate with Asian space powers. What are the technical obligations that may be relevant? What kind of joint efforts are even possible? Does it matter, for example, that it's the United States military that is the primary outreach for things like space situational awareness? Looking at other countries' ability to contribute to space cooperative efforts, what are the capabilities that are available? Are these strictly civilian and governmental in nature, or are there reasonable, feasible private sector options? Alternatively, will working with the United States private sector in space unnerve other countries more used to working with government-backed space programs? Another issue raised there that would be a relevance to this discussion is that often the United States has a different definition of what cooperation is than other countries do. We very much see cooperation as a one-way street, in that we give them data, systems, technology, etc. While other countries want cooperation to be a two-way exchange, where they have something of value that they can give as well. Space programs of other countries tend to be civil in nature, but anything international or cooperative is often done via their ministries of external affairs, leading to bureaucratic confusion, something to keep in mind. Another institutional problem that we come into often is that few countries have an organization in charge of strategic space assets. Japan has changed its rules, I believe, so that it, um, JAXA can do that. But for example, India's ISRO cannot. They do not have authority over its military space assets. And the question is, well, how do you cooperate them if you're trying to do um, discussions with them on that? And then finally, looking at a question of leadership of prioritization. 
Do other countries see international space initiatives, such as the proposed Code of Conduct for our space activities, as a key to the future of their space programs? Or do they see it as ways in which the Western world is trying to change the rules and affect their ability to access and utilize space? Not saying that's necessarily a valid criticism, but we should be aware that the mentality is definitely out there. Secondly, in June, Secure World's Brussels office hosted a panel discussion on the EU and China in space. What came out of it was a recognition that while Europe in general is eager to cooperate with China in space, the fact is, due to a lack of proper inter-European governance on space activities, cooperation with non-European countries is often quite complicated. It can be great between a specific country or in some European countries or ESA, or pretty bad between that same country and the EU, for example. This is the case for China to a lesser extent with India. There is no proper and current European space policy in place that would divide competences and responsibilities among the actors involved, EU, ESA, you know, you can go on, but you get the idea, it's a complicated picture. And thus things are often not unified. This is not an insurmountable challenge, but again, it's something to keep in mind when you're looking at how best to engage with Asian in space. So with that, I'll stop my introductory remarks and we'll go on to the panelists. Uh, you should have all their bios in front of you. Um, we'll be starting, actually moving them line. First speaker will be Roth. Roth, you want to come up here or you just do that? Um, okay. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Victoria. Um, Please at the audience. Uh, I'm in an enviable spot because I extend my sympathies for interrupting your lunch. <laughs> But I'll try and do my best in uh, keeping my remarks short. And, and uh, I think I'd enjoy more of the Q&A than, than me in the talking mode and you in the listening mode. So Victoria gave a good bit of challenges about India. Uh, and you, you summed up the challenges pretty well. But what I'm going to do today is primarily look at the history of the Indian Space Program. Um, and as the title stands, Asian Space Powers Cooperation and Competition, I'd say India is primarily, India's space program, if you look at it, um, and if you've been a keen observer of the space program, and if you look at the indicators, it's, it's, it is a space program that's, that's built around um, realism, pragmatism, and heavily based on international cooperation. That has been a flavor. And you go to India these days, and you talk anybody in the space agency, or even you talk about military space, and you talk to the military, they will tell you that international cooperation is a key, and that is the way for them to proceed. There's no other way that they can do these things on their own. Which means they recognize that space systems are inherently complex, require heavy investment, and at multiple levels, they need to justify to the local domestic audience that you know this is we are doing the right thing. So with that with that as a basis, let me go in, uh, go into a detail of how the space program was formed. The first phase, phase one of the Indian space program, was characterized with use of foreign space systems, configuring the ground system to suit national needs and conditions, as well as working closely with the potential user community. The nature of these programs can be illustrated in this example. The first was an experiment to develop, test, and manage a satellite-based instructional television system to demonstrate the utility of satellite television for mass communication with a specific emphasis 
and remote rural areas in communication. It is known as the Satellite Instructional Television Experiment, and it used the American satellite ATS-6, especially moved over Indian Ocean to conduct this experiment in 1975-76. While the responsibility of design, development, deployment, and operation and maintenance of ground equipment was entirely that of India, uh, it did require an American system to take the system to understand what it does and to use it with the potential user community. You knew how this could. This is the way. This is the only way that they realized that they could do these things because they, neither did they have the technical expertise, the requisite technical expertise. Now they had these systems come. Now they had these systems as a baseline to start measuring things. For them. So that was number one. The second example was related to the satellite telecommunication experimental project. So the first was, so if you look at the Indian Space Program, it's three phases. One is remote sensing, the next is a communication series of satellites, and the third is a launcher aspect of it. So while they did the, while they did the remote sensing aspect of it, the next experiment that they learned was the satellite telecommunication experimental project. Um, it primarily understood the uses of interf interface between space and ground systems for communication, <coughs> and it was conducted with the help of a Franco-German satellite called Symphony. So STEP helped in concretizing the initial thinking on disaster warning systems, radio networking concepts, and transportable terminal developments, and provided vital planning and input. It laid the foundation for the INSAT series of satellites. So this was in the first phase. The third example related to the space-based Earth observation system, the Landsat series. The Landsat launched by USA in 1972 provided a unique opportunity to test the utility of a satellite-based Earth observation system for obtaining timely, accurate, precise information of Earth's resources. Um, the exercises of ground systems integrating space-based data with conventional aerial and ground-based data and working with, closely with the use of community such as the Geological Survey of India, um, agriculture, forestry, and water resources, <coughs> provided the Indians with crucial insights for planning and future operational remote sensing systems. So if you look at it, you have this first generation, the first phase that gives you the requisite experiment as well as like building the systems, operating the systems, and integrating the data um, to, use it for, to use it for your, to, see, to achieve your own objectives. Once you learn how these systems work, one, once you learn how these systems work, the next is you try doing them on your own. That's, that would be your experimental aspect of things. If you're in a lab, if you're starting a company, that's what you're going to do. Um, the experimental phase was, in the experimental phase, the major realization for the Indians was this was inherently complex and required extremely heavy investments. And to, to get that funding from the government, you need to justify that you know, uh, we are a nascent democracy. Why in 1970s and 80s India was, it's still, a, it's still fighting poverty, it's a, it's a perennial battle as it stands. But you still have to justify to the political authorities that you are going to have success in these high-end projects. So, so they, one was they took cognizance, the failure, the margin for failures for the Indians was very less. So you had to achieve, you had to, you had to find more that. And um, and the the other thing was while all this is happening, um, you also have to build competence with your own um, public 
for example, now one of the things with even still that's happening in India is you have all these space systems, but where is your expertise going to come from? You can't employ foreign nationals because you already have a huge domestic pool, but you need to have also your um, the ISROs, the people that are working in the Indian Space Organization, in such organization. I do not know what the average age is, but my, my data suggests that a bulk of the bulk of the workforce is going to retire. So you have to replace this workforce. And as your space operations and space areas, the area of objectives in space keeps increasing, you need to train additional people to do these, these type of jobs. So that was, that was one of the, that was what was happening in the experimental phase. And in this, the key example is called the Ariane Passenger Payload Experiment that was conducted in 1981. Um, that was, again, a joint venture between EADS, Astrium, and, and Indians. It provided experience in satellite communications, including building of a body-stabilized <laughs> geosynchronous satellites. The involvement of the user agencies early in the program had a very significant influence on the adoption, adoption of satellite communication technology in operational communication systems for India in the subsequent years. The last and the critical phase that I'd like to touch is the operational phase, which is, which is the phase that's going on at the moment. Um, the operational phase um, your encouragement was provided to the Indians. The encouragement was provided to the Indians with the success of previous two phases. And building that, um, in, India decided to go. India decided to divide its space program into three main areas. One is communication, one is remote sensing, and as I mentioned, the other is a launch system. But, but all these things, but you have to form a number of agencies when you form a company. One is you, ha you have to master the technology, you have to master the institutions, you have to ma master the bureaucracy, and you have to work within the system to justify. All these things take time. But by the time in the 1980s to 1990s, the economy was on the verge of liberalization, and this had to be in sync with all these uh, growing demands of the population too. So you recognize that these things take time, these things are come difficult to achieve. So first is you be pragmatic about it and go and buy out four. The first phase of this was you go and buy out four. In, the first four inside series of satellites were bought while on the same time you are working, you're training your workforce to do this indigenous, indigenously. The, the remote sensing was a different aspect. It took a little bit of time. Um, the, uh, the demands made remote sensing uh, uh, India did not go internationally much in the remote sensing market to buy out systems. But the launcher was launcher was, was essentially the same strategy too. The launch series was done with the same strategy too. So initial launches were conducted with foreign um, um, foreign uh, entities. So Ariane Space now still launches uh, India's INSAT series of satellites because they still have not been able to, the GSLV is not a, still a success, successful vehicle. So this was, this was done with a sense of pragmatism, and this was done with the recognition that um, they do not have the resources to do these, uh, do these projects. So here, here is where this is, this is a case of being very pragmatic, international collaboration, using international collaboration to achieve yourself, 
to achieve your objectives. So bilaterally, um, India's cooperative arrangements with almost 20 countries, including Australia, France, Germany, Russia, and the United States. The scope of the international cooperation is multidimensional in nature, which includes joint missions, offering opportunity for flight of instruments, onboard Indian satellites, exchange of, uh, exchange of meteorological information, and also offering education and training in the area of space. Um, the Chandrayaan-1 is, is an example about how many payloads were on that mission uh, on an international basis. Uh, if you have looked at the announcement of the Mars mission, reading between fine lines, you'd see um, there is, it will be up for international take as well. And um, on the education and training front, uh, India has developed a Center for Space Science and Technology and Application Education for Asia and Pacific, which is affiliated to the United Nations and is offering structured educational programs. The other entity is the Antrix, which is obviously has the revenue in mind, but still global marketing of uh, Indian remote sensing data, <coughs> as well as transpond, leasing transponder capacity to including Intelsat supply of spacecraft subsystems and mission support services of Indian ground stations are some of the highlights of Antrix space business. Um, looking ahead, there are two main areas. The operational phase will continue as it will. But there are two main areas that warrant attention. One is the space exploration area, the Mars mission and the Moon mission. And they will be done within, I'll, we can go this into the detail in the question and answer. But the most important aspect that I am interested in and I, and I think will be particularly more interesting is the space security aspect, by which I mean one is space situational awareness and the other is space governance. Two primary, two primary aspects will be extremely interesting, will be a function of geopolitical circumstances and alliances as far as India is concerned. And we can elaborate. I think this will be, this will be the juicy part of the discussion. Um, and, and you will notice extensive international cooperation. And the US will be a key partner in their calculations. And I'll stop. Thank you. Thank you. OK, next we have up is Joan Johnson Freese, who I would like to add is a Secure World Advisory Committee member. We're very proud of it. Thank you, Victoria, and thank you to the organizers of this event. I'm always happy to participate in these because I think it's a great way to share information and views. I, I agree that the Q&A is going to be best, so I'll try and get through my remarks quickly. I've been asked to discuss China, and I've said before, and I need to say now, oh, by the way, before I start, I need to give my disclaimer. <laughs> That's what I really need to say. Um, I am on the faculty at the Naval War College, but I'm here today talking as an academic and uh, not in any way representing the views of the Naval War College, the Navy, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. So, all right, that's up. <laughs> So I've been asked to discuss China, and I've often said that China is a country of such size and diversity that you can find evidence for pretty much any hypothesis you seek to prove. So what I can offer today are my views as an analyst and observer of Chinese space activities for about 20 plus years, but I'm sure there are other perspectives. And I say this because I'm going to argue that the Chinese space program is inherently competitive but with cooperation also incorporated in. 
that Chinese intentions and activities are neither entirely benign nor entirely nefarious. And I'm sure there are other analysts who would sway more, more one way than the other on that. There's actually a term called coopetition, which I personally don't like because it's just too cute and too facile. But <laughs> it does it does convey a likely accurate portrayal of the situation. It sounds like a secure world. Topic. <laughs> <laughs> we do trademark it. Chinese space activities, in fact, I would argue all space activities, are inherently competitive for basically two reasons, and that's geopolitics and dual-use technology. Together, these factors really create the perfect environment for a classic security dilemmas where countries undertake actions, very often involving technology, that are ultimately not in their own interests. So the challenge, I think, for all spacefaring nations is to resist the sometimes very powerful temptations to pursue activities, activities that they would pursue because of perceived threat, uh, which will ultimately be against their own interest. The problems created by the dual-use nature of space technology, especially the inability to determine the intended use of the technology, whether for civilian or military, or offensive or defensive purposes, intrinsically results in speculation in other countries about what is the intent of this technology. Speculation exacerbates geopolitical competition because issues of trust, and unfortunately more often lack thereof, uh, comes into play. Additionally, military threat calculations are largely based on capabilities rather than intent. And dual-use space technology offers capabilities that are um, undeniably valuable to militaries. So what is the geopolitical situation? The U.S. pivot to Asia or rebalancing policy has resulted in considerable consternation in China, as have restrictions on the NASA budget regarding working with China. Um, I would mention as well that the rationale and mechanics of the latter seem particularly difficult for China to understand and very often for those of us in the United States to understand as well. Chinese military modernization, seen as expansive and alarming in the U.S., generates concerns in the U.S. and in Asia as well. Um, this is sometimes viewed as China using techno-nationalism to really further advance its causes. And part of that is political prestige, and this geopolitical prestige that China has garnered from its expansive and successful program has generated a regional suspicion, if not rivalry. And I think this is where the is there an Asian space race kind of comes into play. I would suggest that is perhaps most evidence in India's recent expansion of space goals from the very pragmatic into heretofore ignored areas like exploration and uh, if further into security is issues. Besides India, other Asian countries, Japan in particular, certainly have the technology to challenge Beijing's clear lead in whatever Asian space race exists. But what Beijing has, and other countries have not, and I think it still remains to be seen how much resolve India can maintain for its very ambitious new exploration goals, is political will. I'll also go out on a little limb here and say that I think 
that uh, Japan is, is really posturing itself to compete with China in terms of the soft power that space can, uh, can, can garner for you um, by support for third-party space ventures in Asia. Meanwhile, however, China continues on its path into space, and I would note that at the beginning of almost every media interview that I do regarding Chinese space ambitions and activities, I always have to begin by stating that China does not currently have an officially approved human lunar mission. Does it perhaps have ambitions? Is it putting blocks into place that would allow it to do so? Absolutely. But there is no officially approved Chinese human lunar mission. That, however, that doesn't mean it hasn't reached pretty much urban legend proportions in the United States. In fact, uh, it's just been within the last three to five years that the Chinese have really seriously begun talking about a manned lunar mission within its, its policy circles. And it's important to note as well that the potential for a, a uh, manned lunar mission, a human lunar mi mission, is not immune from skepticism. I was at a, the NASA uh, solar system, or space, space science at 50 workshop this morning, and there was a lot of discussion about how the Apollo mission met with resistance from not just the space science community, but the science community in general. And the same is, I think the same kind of questioning is going on in China as well. So whether or not they, they shoot for that goal, uh, I don't think is a, sh a sure thing. I think it's a likely, but not a sure. But China is entering the third part of its 30-year human spaceflight program. When the Long March 5 becomes operational, and that's now looking like it's closer to 2014, they will be able to launch a space station into orbit. And Tiangang was not their space station. That was a space lab, a space module, not to be confused with their ultimate goal, which has been their ultimate goal all along of a larger space station. That will make China the de facto leader in human spaceflight capability. And when you're on top, there are always those who want to challenge you. The US knows that all too well. And also multiple opportunities for, for cooperation, very visible cooperation, like offering junkets into space to visit your space station. <laughs> uh, these will be especially impressive if the US civil space program is still in a transition phase, a transition which I would argue is necessary, but nevertheless one that takes time and leaves a very big window of opportunity for other countries to ste step in and take an activity lead, and I differentiate that from a capability lead. It's just who is doing the most at this particular point in time. And why can they do that? I would go back again to political will. China is also expanding its military space capabilities, and if actions speak louder than words, the Chinese ASAT test in 2007 screamed military competition to other space-faring nations. That test and the debris created certainly confirmed for many countries that space is a congested, contested, and competitive environment. Events that followed Operation Burnt Frost, conducted by the US in 2008, the Chinese missile defense test in 2010, and India's 2011 test of missile technology, uh, potentially useful to the development of an ASAT capability, 
are indicators of the kind of security dilemma spiral that can happen that I mentioned earlier and, generally, and potentially threaten the space environment. If there's any upside at all to that irresponsible 2007 Chinese test, it was the frightening realization by all countries of how fragile the space environment is and that mankind's de dependence on space, and I like to always note that GPS is one of only two global utilities, makes it in everyone's best interest to cooperate to maintain that environment. China has recognized this need to sustain the space environment and cooperated, though some would say hypocritically, on relevant issues including, or maybe particularly, the space debris issue. And with that, I'd like to turn to China's potential perspective on the space code of conduct. And I say potential because this is exactly the kind of speculation I was saying is not always useful at the beginning. <laughs> Several points can be drawn from that issue regarding China's uh, apparent positions, problems with deciphering cooperation versus competitive <laughs> attitudes, and how ultimately there will be areas where China, like other countries, will be willing and perhaps even anxious to work with others, and others where they will be seen as competing. First, China has consistently stated a policy of using outer space for peaceful purposes and opposing weaponization or any arms race in outer space. In fact, with Russia, they submitted a draft treaty in 2008 on the prevention of the placement of weapons in outer space and the threat or use of force against outer space objects, the PPWT, at the Conference on Disarmament. China clearly prefers legally binding agreements, treaties. The code of conduct proposed initially by the Europeans is part of the soft law move towards using transparency and confidence building measures to deal with threats such as misperceptions, miscommunications, that could heighten tensions, lead to escalation, and lead to the security dilemma issue without it being a legally binding agreement that might be domestically impossible for some countries to agree to. That would be the United States. And it's not just on space. The United States has not been in a mood for large multilateral treaties on any issue for quite some time. The importance of recognizing the frequency with which misperception, miscommunication, and misinterpretation occur between the US and China, and it certainly occurs with other countries as well, but I would suggest it's most often between the US and China, can't be overstated. Uh, I mentioned last week, and I will mention again, that Gregory Krulacki and I re recently published a short piece uh, where we looked at the poor sources used by some US analysts to support claims that the development of test testing of a Chinese space plane. And our point was that while activity in that area is certain, it's not useful to hype threats by misinterpreting uh, sources. It only adds to the security dilemma problem. Any transparency and confidence building measures that will aid in abetting these misunderstandings will, I believe, be useful. And I think China recognizes this as well. China recognizes that issues involving maintaining the sustainability of the space environment, and in particular space debris, can't be dealt with on a national level, and therefore has worked cooperatively on that issue. A code of conduct is not legally binding. Rather, they're voluntary measures. And this has been cited by at least one Chinese analyst as a big obstacle for China. 
Nevertheless, while they favor legally binding treaties, Chinese representatives at the United Nations have, start, have stated that TCBMs are not at odds, and this is a quote from, from this official, with efforts to prevent an arms race in outer space, and such TCBMs are useful supplements to legal instruments. Other Chinese analysts suggest that substantive differences between a treaty approach and a code of conduct approach focus on failure to ban ground-based ASATs and a lack of verification regime in a treaty, and failure to constrain space-to-earth weapons uh, make the code of conduct unacceptable to China and perhaps other states. China has made it clear that they won't agree to any agree, uh, arrangements potentially affecting the development of the military space domain. And uh, this doesn't strike me as particularly surprising, and I would imagine that other countries, including the United States, would feel similarly. Here's where areas like misunderstanding, dual-use technology, and sovereignty really begin to collide. In my opinion, China is closely studying the costs and benefits to a soft law approach to the multitude of issues, and space debris is certainly high among them, related to the sustainability of the space environment, which all recognize as critical, and has not ruled out that approach. Part of what they will be looking at, again, this goes back to the geopolitics, is whether support for a code of conduct will weaken or even nullify potential for the PPWT, and with it, the geopolitical advantages uh, garnered by China from being a co-sponsoring advocate of a treaty on a subject of concern to so many countries, and which the United States has consistently blocked. Politics and diplomatic strategy is a many-sided prism where gain in one area has to be weighed against losses in another. Politics uh, as well come into play in terms of domestic politics. Just as little substantive is likely to be accomplished on controversial issues during a presidential election, such as we are currently in the midst of, the thank goodness finally in the midst coming to an end of, um, such is also the case with China, where they are in a period of leadership transition, and I don't think we can expect any big movement or any big announcements during that period. Initially, it was uh, suggested that China was not supportive of a code of conduct um, because, as suggested uh, about India in some Indian publications, it felt excluded from initial negotiations. In my own research, and in doing some research in China last year, however, I found that reasoning about China was most often suggested by Indian analysts rather than Chinese analysts. Uh, whether China will be... No, I've actually attacked it. Whether China will lead toward promotion of cooperation or competition in the future, I think will best be known by its adherence to best practices. In other words, actions will speak louder than words. Inevitably, however, cooperation, however much I don't like that word, will prevail in the future. Thank you. Okay, next we have Kazuta Suzuki, who is also a Secure World Advisory Committee member. And um, let's pull up your PowerPoint real quick. And there's a remote right there. Yeah, got it. Got it. Isn't a guest guest? 
2036. I think you downloaded a different file. Which file? I, I, I think. <laughs> oh, sorry about technical difficulties. Um, you pull up a different file. Anyway, um, I'm, I'm going to talk about um, the Japanese. Uh, but this is. Uh, Do you want to take two minutes and get the right file? No, 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 no. I'm, you I'm, sure? I'll, I'll go without the. Oh. Um, <coughs> so, uh, well, thank you very much, Victoria, um, um, and, uh, for uh, for providing me this occasion. Um, I'm uh, originally from Hokkaido University, but currently uh, staying in Princeton. So I'm uh, very happy to just travel down to Washington D.C. in just two hours, which is impossible from Japan. Um, <laughs> What I'm going to talk about is the Japanese approach to the international cooperation and competition. Although we don't use the competition or whatever. Um, no one does. The uh, idea of the Japanese space is quite different from uh, other countries, including the United States. That the, uh, for many years, um, Japan has been focusing uh, the building up a space technological capability uh, uh, with regard to uh, many aspects, including um, uh, satellites and launchers, but um, there was a, a strong criticisms um, towards the uh, Japanese traditional um, space policy, as well as the changing nature of the security uh, surroundings of Japan. Particularly, the turning point was the 1998 North Korean missile launch, and also the emergence of China as the military uh, military power in East Asia, so um, there were certain ideas that Japan should move on from, uh, um, from its space policy, uh, not focusing only on the R&D, but also the utilization of, uh, of space. However, this is not only motivated by the, um, the security and international relations uh, perspective, but also uh, internal uh, questions. Um, on the one hand, Japan has been facing uh, very, uh, some sort of you know, fiscal cliff. Um, the Japan, Japanese uh, uh, public debt is about 200% of GDP, and consider the size of the Japanese GDP, it is a humongous amount of the public debt, and we are facing a very um, tough um, financial situation. Uh, also, the Japanese um, Although the J Japan has a, a strong capability of the space technology, the Japanese industry has lacked its own competitiveness, international competitiveness. Um, many years, the Japan has been um, <coughs> procuring a commercial satellite from the United States, and uh, J Japanese-owned uh, industries are not able to penetrate into its own market. So there were concerns about the financial aspect on the one hand and the commercial competitiveness on the other hand. The Japan has under a, a Japanese state policy was under a very heavy strain uh, from the uh, public and private, I mean, the, um, uh, pressure from the um, public opinion as well as uh, from the politicians. So. Um, the result was the uh, 2008 Basic Space Law. The Basic Space Law um, focuses uh, mainly on the four points. One is to reorganize the space administration. One is to reorganize 
the Space Policy Center from the Ministry of Education, Science and Technology, which is we call NEXT, to the Cabinet Office, which is directly reporting to the Prime Minister, and creating the uh, strategic headquarter for space policy, which is the cabinet level uh, 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 meetings of the ministers to decide the um, uh, grand strategy of the space policy. Also involving not only the uh, ministries for science and technology, but also uh, user ministries, so that in order to encourage the um, utilization of the space assets, uh, instead of just uh, creating it for the R&D purposes. And also, um, the second point was the change of the interpretation of the notion of the peaceful use of space. For many years, uh, the concept of the peaceful use of space was derived from the idea of the Japanese constitution. The Japanese constitution, Article 9, states that Japan um, giving up, abandoned the, uh, um, the rights to get into uh, a military conflict for the act of sovereign state, uh, except the case of the self-defense. So basically, the idea of um, peaceful purpose of use of space was the um, excluding the military use of space, not only the <coughs> using um, uh, launcher technology for the missile uh, technology, but not using the, uh, for example, the commercial uh, communication satellites, surveillance satellites, for the military purpose as well. So the military are not, shall not uh, invest, own, and operate uh, space assets uh, in general. So which eventually um, <coughs> pushes Japan in a very difficult situation, particularly when uh, Japan sent uh, troops to the uh, peacekeeping operations, for example, or the uh, anti-piracy activities in the Gulf of Aden. And therefore, um, there are certain changes necessary to reinterpret the um, concept of peaceful use and uh, the basic space of states that the um, space shall, use, shall be used for the purpose of the national and international security within the limit of the Japanese constitution, which means that the space can be used for the self-defense forces activities, but only for the self-defense purposes. So it is not allowed to use uh, space assets for attacking foreign countries, but um, it, is, it can be used for the surveillance and the communication. The third point is the promotion of the industrialization of space. I mean, this is the concept of industrialization is different from the commercialization. Industrialization means that the, getting the industry out of the R&D and to be competitive in the international market, which means that the, for many years, Japan focused too, too much on the R&D. That means that the products are much expensive because uh, the, there are a lot of new uh, technological elements and also less reliable because the uh, technology are not proven uh, in the orbit. So instead of focusing on R&D, we need to lower the cost by 
making this, using the sort of similar uh, 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 parts and components, and also using the uh, uh, using uh, satellites for the user ministries in order to uh, improve the uh, reliability. And the the last point is the the um, the change of notion of the space for the society uh, and taxpayers. So the space are not serving. Uh, for many years, the people think that the space is not serving for, for society. And this is typically, uh, the, the typical case was the, um, uh, the earthquake and tsunami last year. The great eastern uh, Japan earthquake uh, tsunami has devastated in the northern uh, part of Japan. But uh, the ALOS, which is the uh, land observation satellite, uh, have only um, played a role uh, in a very short period because it was m not meant to um, operate during that time. I mean, if the uh, satellite were the satellite that, um, were almost expired before uh, the earthquake happened. So, and there was no uh, follow-on program for that. So, if there was no um, ALOS satellite available, then we were not able to have our own satellite pictures, and we have to purchase all the pictures from the commercial uh, satellite imagery companies. So again, um, the idea of uh, using space for the society means that we, are, we have to be prepared for those uh, occasions. <coughs> uh, in terms of the cooperation, um, Japan uh, uh, focuses on the something called the APR staff. APR staff stands for Asia-Pacific Space uh, Regional Space Agency Forum. And APR staff was uh, initiate, uh, initiated by Japan, created in 1992, uh, well, sorry, 1993. <coughs> and basically this is a forum of the regional, uh, which means the East and Southeast Asian uh, countries, uh, space cooperation, uh, uh, space agencies. <coughs> However, uh, because of the emergence of China as the another uh, leader in the region, um, the APR staff has changed its characteristics from the talking shop to more uh, program-oriented organizations. For example, in 2005, the APR staff proposed to, uh, to form uh, something called Sentinel Asia. Perhaps you may, if you are familiar with the European programs, this is actually the sort of mimicking the GMES approach to use the common satellite to provide the imagery for the common purposes. The Sentinel Asia is to, to be used for the disaster monitoring and also the maritime security. But basically, this is uh, the idea is different from uh, from Europe that. Uh, this is uh, uh, JAXA's proposal to use JAXA's satellite for the Earth observation imagery providing to the APR staff members. And based on this uh, uh, Sentinel Asia idea, the uh, JAXA also proposed uh, something called SAFE, uh, which stands for Space Application for Environment in 2008. This uh, program is, I mean, 
as, as the name shows, um, it focused on the environmental uh, questions, um, for example, the protection of a mangrove in Thailand, or the change of the rise of the sea level. And Japan has uh, several um, uh, space assets such as GOSAT and GCOMW. These satellites will be, will be used to provide the uh, um, data for other countries to, to, for the protection of the environment. In 2009, the JAXA started another initiative which is called STAR, uh, stands for Space Technology for Asia-Pacific Region. The STAR program was actually the uh, reflect or the response to the Chinese uh, proposal in its uh, Chinese version of the Asian Pacific Organization called APUSCO. APUSCO stands for Asia Pacific Space Cooperation Organization and they do have a program called SMMS, a Small Multi-Mission Satellite. And this SMMS program is to attract the non-spacefaring nations to uh, learn the Chinese technologies and what the engineers are gathering in, in, in China and to learn and build the small satellites together. So, that, so it's an educational program and to uh, <coughs> to use the Chinese leadership, uh, to use the, the space capability to exercise the Chinese leadership. So in response, the JAXA proposed a similar program called STAR, which is, again, this is focusing on the small satellite technology and uh, providing opportunities for uh, um, those countries which doesn't have the space um, capabilities. So, so far we have uh, students from Malaysia, Indonesia, and the, uh, Nepal. Um, those countries who, learn, who wants to learn uh, the uh, satellite building technology will have an opportunity for both uh, Japan and China. However, the Chinese program only opens for the APUSCO members, which is only nine. And the APR staff has almost all uh, <coughs> Uh, membership except uh, North Korea. So basically, the um, competition side, the Japan is in a competition with uh, with China, and as Joan mentioned, that it is a competition of the soft power, not the hard power. Um, the Japan is has not really influenced by the uh, Chinese space activities as such. Well, for example, the Chinese manned space program is not a threat to Japan and because Japan doesn't have any manned space flight program and um, because of, as I said, financial constraints, it's, um, we cannot afford going to the um, manned space, uh, autonomous manned space program. So um, the Japan is sticking with the International Space Station and uh, that is not compatible uh, to the Chinese programs. So basically we are living in a different world. Uh, moon exploration, yes, the Japan sent Kaguya in 2007, uh, China um, sent the Chang'e 1 uh, just right after the Japanese mission, but that's again a coincidence because it's not designed. I mean, Kaguya was supposed to be launched in 2005 and because of many reasons uh, it launched, the launch was postponed two years and somehow um, the 
Chandrayaan was launched in 2008, so it seems that there was a, um, a competition of the race to the moon, but that's not true because there's no follow-on activity, for example, in Japan. Although uh, India has Chang uh, Chandrayaan 2 and uh, China has Chang'e 2, so maybe you can say China and India are in competition, but not with Japan, because Japan is not showing its interest to go back to moon. Uh, there's no such thing as Kaguya 2. ASA test. Yes, the ASA test has been a threat to many of us, not only Japan, and it's not regional, it's a global issue. But for many years, Japan has not launched and operated the operational application satellite. So that means that we have so many satellites which are basically the engineering test satellite. Engineering test satellite doesn't necessarily mean that we are using for operation purposes, so we don't mind losing it. And that's the problem. I mean, if you talk to JAXA people and people say, what happens if the debris hits you? And people say, we are happy because we can launch another one. <laughs> so basically, that's the kind of mindset of the JAXA people, and that's why Japan was not so much involved in the question of the space security, or be it the SSA, or space governance. So that's the problem. And Japan is not sending uh, the expert in the GGE, the group of uh, governmental experts, which is happening now in the United Nations, uh, because the Japan took uh, cybersecurity more seriously than uh, space security. So that's the sort of mindset or the perception of Japan about the ASAP test. Therefore, the ASAP test is not a huge concern for Japan. However, we do have uh, we we concern about the Chinese leadership, and particularly the APUSCO activities, or using space assets for the bilateral diplomacy. China uses space assets for the uh, bilateral to strengthening the bilateral relationship with Nigeria, Venezuela, Bolivia, Indonesia. You know these countries were resource-rich resource countries, and China is not acting space only within the space diplomacy. They are using space for the wider diplomacy, international relations. And Japan is perhaps learning, I, I think the word learning is perhaps the best word, to, from, um, from China and compete with China because Japan also needs the access to the resources. So finally, what's the implication of this um, cooperation and competition? One, um, it's good for the Southeast Asian countries, as I said, they do have an option whether, you know, the SMMS in the Apusco or the uh, STAR program in the APR-SAF, they do have a choice. So there's a more opportunity for the other Asian countries to cooperate with Japan and China. And both Japan and China has incentive to get more stronger cooperation with those countries, that means that uh, the, the, this competition is actually strengthening the regional um, cooperation. Also, uh, it provides more security and capability for those uh, regions. In Asia, um, there are many countries which are still seeking to build the satellite capability, such as Vietnam. And now, because of the uh, uh, conflict between Vietnam and China in the South China Sea about the territorial dispute, 
the uh, Vietnam is looking, uh, uh, seeking a much stronger cooperation with Japan, and Japan uh, responded to that, and there, there is an agreement to sell the uh, small radar satellite to Vietnam, which is to monitor the maritime security. So again, I mean, this sort of things are using space for the confidence building measures, and and because of the two sources in the region. Uh, which eventually provides more countries accessing to the more space assets. Finally, the, uh, with regard to the code of conduct, again, I mean, I have nothing to add what uh, Joanne has already said. That, uh, the question is um, how to involve China in, in this uh, um, uh, discussion about the code of con international code of conduct. And the, unfortunately, this competition of the leadership between Japan and China over the uh, Asian uh, space activities, it may not be helpful for um, of, uh, to, to bring China into the international discussion of the international code of conduct because it's all about the question of the space governance and who takes the leadership. So if Japan is on the uh, code of conduct side, then China may not be like, well, of course China will also want to have some piece of the leadership too. So again, um, as Duan mentioned, that you know, uh, if they are not involved in the, from the beginning, they might may not be happier to join as a latecomer. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. And last but not least, we have Asif Siddiqui, uh, okay. doing the wrap-up. Um, so, first of all, thanks to uh, the Secure World Foundation and to Victoria personally for inviting me here. Um, I was asked to speak generally about Asia and space uh, with an eye towards the so-called Asian space race and uh, particularly on security issues. And I'll come back to this competition or cooperation issue in a second. I should say that my basic competence is really on India. Uh, I'm writing a book on the Indian space program, but, uh, and I, but you know, hopefully I'll have some sort of big picture analysis here. And I will indeed actually repeat some of the things that our, our previous speakers have said, so bear with me. Um, and my basic point, uh, I think, will become evident as I go through the talk which is that any notion of Asia and space has to take into account multiple regional linkages uh, and indeed, indeed at times global, a global perspective. Uh, when it comes to Asia and space, most, if not all, the focus has been on the three major powers, uh, China, Japan, and India. And in some cases, we may include uh, North Korea and South Korea. And there are indeed compelling rationales for, uh, to limit the discussion to these nations. Uh, China, Japan, and India all have an indigenous launch capability to launch satellites into orbit. And North Korea and South Korea perhaps will do so very soon. In fact, I think the South Korean rocket is going to launch tomorrow. Um, but uh, so I think we can all agree that indigenous launch capability to orbit is a key metric of national competence that distinguishes the major space powers. Uh, if we expand geographically a bit from East and South Asia, then we get to two other major um, you know, Asian space powers, Israel and Iran, who are also nations capable of launching satellites into orbit. And beyond geography, there are any number of nations in Asia who have built satellites themselves or procured satellites from other space-bearing powers and had them launched by others. And there's a whole host of nations here, the Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, etc., etc., Singapore, Taiwan, Philippines. And then there's still other nations in Asia who have uh, some substantial ground infrastructure but don't have satellites or anything like that, 
but to participate through regional uh, organizations uh, or pay for the use of satellites. So uh, while I think there is a case to be made to focus mostly on China, Japan, and India, as I'll do today, I think we should be aware that there's a continuum of capability across Asia, and that the measures that divide nations into particular categories uh, of competence are sometimes somewhat nebulous. Uh, so, so, so having said all that, there's a number of ways to think about the more visible Asian space powers, China, Japan, and India. Uh, my comments are really on three sort of categories. Uh, first, on basic levels of competence, where, where can we situate them? Second, I'm going to talk about security issues, and third, on regional cooperation. So the three national programs, China, Japan, India, have a comparable, in some sense, range of competence, although there's obviously differences in scale, commitment, and funding, and you know, there's all these details we can hash out. These programs began at approximately the same time in the 1960s, and within three decades had achieved uh, some level of maturity. China and Japan, benefiting from a large resource base, educated elite, political will, came out at the starting date almost simultaneously, both launching their first indigenous satellites in 1970, India uh, appeared on the scene about a decade later, emphasizing an ideology that could be best described as, quote, space for development, unquote. And all three nations began with modest steps, and each developed competence um, in both common and different areas. All three currently operate a fleet of reliable uh, launch vehicles, for the lot of most part. All have developed a wide range of systems and subsystems indigenously to support and man manufacture advanced satellites. Um, all possess relatively mature infrastructure that supports, supports a wide range of activities. Each has also developed competence in areas, uh, I think, that bring them a, a comparative advantage. India, for example, has developed some of the best remote sensing satellites in the world, uh, competitive on a global scale, I would argue. The Japanese uh, you know, are key participants uh, in human spaceflight as part, full partners on ISS. Uh, Japan's main contribution to Kibo includes the largest pressurized module on ISS, in fact. And right this minute, there's a Japanese astronaut in ISS. Um, of course, we can't avoid China. China has clearly outstripped its closest rivals in almost every aspect of space technology. Uh, a key issue here is obviously the, its human spaceflight program in the early 2000s. Um, so that's sort of the basic surface level history, um, uh, which brings me to this the, the, the term, the Asian space race. Where did this come from? What, what do we do with this term? This term, as far as I can tell, emerged in the early 2000s, really around 2003, around uh, China's first uh, human space mission, but really became ubiquitous around 2007-8, uh, when in my mind at least there was sort of a, lar a largely coincidental confluence of events, mainly the sort of near simultaneously, simultaneous launch of lunar missions by China, Japan, and India in the space of a year or so. Uh, so I, my sense is that the convergence of these dates are largely serendipitous, but uh, either way, their proximity set off a way publicity about an Asian space race that seemed to communicate a kind of deliberate intention. And I think that publicity itself has paradoxically served to create a much more charged climate among the three space powers. In other words, even if there was no original space race in terms of mission planning and so on and so forth, the media's construction of it ha of, as a space race has, I think, begun to impact the behavior, or at least the, the discourse on space powers, especially in India and Japan, uh, but more particularly in India, I think. Um, and furthermore, it's begun to draw into its orbit the space activities of other Asian nations, such as South Korea and Malaysia and so forth. So policymakers are forced to acknowledge, at least acknowledge the existence of a space race, even if they officially deny it, or, you know, sort of, I think that's something we have to consider. Um, um, 
So there's, if we are to sort of confront or deal with some version of the space race, uh, can we call it competition and cooperation? Obviously the previous speakers have um, talked about that. Uh, in terms of space security, um, all three countries, um, I think, uh, have some, some level of involvement in uh, both surveillance and military systems. Um, but I think China and India are clearly the, the two players that we have been, have been in the news most recently. Uh, China has uh, several dual-use uh, optical imaging satellites and have, them, have had them for decades. Um, and some of them are reportedly quite sophisticated uh, and are capable of real-time imaging and data transmission. Uh, Japan has a modest constellation of reconnaissance satellites, uh, the information gathering satellites, uh, <coughs> carrying uh, synthetic aperture radars. Uh, and this emerged, as we just heard, uh, in some sense as a response to North Korean missile test. The Indian Space Research Organization, ISRO, uh, which runs the Indian Space Program, has a civilian mandate. But in the last decade, there's been calls for closer ties to the sort of uh, the more defense-oriented uh, government research organizations, particularly the defense research and development organizations, which is the DRDO. And already in the early 2000s, you see ISRO fielding dual civilian military surveillance systems, including the technology experiment satellite, uh, which supposedly imaged the northern parts of India near Kashmir and places like that. Um, and then you have later models like Cardasat, and there are now plans for an actual satellite called the Communication-Centric Intelligence Satellite, CCISAT, which is scheduled for launch in 2014. This would be the first dedicated Indian surveillance satellite. And if you move past surveillance into actual military uh, activities, which, you know, in terms of actual combat, those sorts of things, the salient issues is, of course, the ASAT program and the Chinese ASAT test in January 2007 and all the discussion about it, which I won't go into. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Um, um, but one thing that has been interesting has been the Indian response to that. And when I say Indian, it's really in quotes because it's not clear who's talking. There's the media. There's... Uh, public policy people, there's think tanks, there's the military, there's ISRO, there's DRDO, there's all sorts. There's a cacophony of voices about what India should do. So at any given moment, you can pick out any statement and say this is what India is doing. Uh, what we do know is that uh, certainly India has the capability uh, to sort of, uh, has, has the building blocks in place, so to speak. I think you used this term in one of your writings, which is that they, ha they have the building blocks in place and the capability to do, um, to uh, pretty much uh, field an ASAT system relatively quickly, but there's no operational capability as of yet. But they are going to be testing ASAT uh, technologies, as I understand it, uh, in the next um, two to four years. Um, um, when they may be building, um, certainly there's going to be some leveraging on the ballistic missile defense project um, that's also under testing stage now. Uh, there's also external linkages that I want to emphasize in terms of the security situation. Uh, military flavor competition in space plays out through alliances, and I was uh, sort of reflecting on particularly um, two other nations, in fact, Iran and Israel, and how they play into the Asian space race. The Iranian space program has uh, benefited from cooperation with the Chinese. A recent Chinese satellite actually carried, an imaging, uh, carried imaging equipment uh, apparently jointly developed by Iran and China. On the other side, the scale of Indian-Israeli cooperation in defense, uh, which is, is vast, and uh, space is actually a very small component of it, but there was a, the launch of Resat 2 recently, uh, supposedly a sophisticated Israeli spy satellite procured by the Indians. 
Um, so you have a sense of the strategic implications of this space race, not only between China and India, but between Israel and Iran are, are kind of uh, mapped onto what's going on in East Asia. So, so I think when we think of the security implications of all this, we have to expand our purview beyond East Asia and South Asia, maybe draw uh, larger connections here. And my final point has to do with regional linkages, and here I'm actually going to be repeating a lot of the stuff that uh, Kazuto said, so bear with me. Um, uh, I think there's kind of an, uh, another Asian space race uh, going on, uh, or at least uh, competitive uh, projects going on. I mean, I call this the other space race. It's, it's led by China to facing increasing competition from India and Japan, and it's embodied in the struggle of these nations to influence and project their power over smaller and developing Asian countries. Nations that lack the capacity to develop satellites themselves or are spurned by Western companies or agencies uh, for, for reasons of politics or corruption. They can't go to you know, uh, an, an, a European company, so they go to China or Japan or uh, whatever. Uh, and so in recent years, you, uh, uh, China uh, and Japan and India, three nations, have built up substantial competence to deliver these services to a host of smaller countries. China has carved out the most dominant position in this niche market, the principal vehicle being the Asia-Pacific Space Cooperation Organization, or APSCO, uh, which currently involves nine nations, uh, including China, Indonesia, Iran, Mongolia, Pakistan, Peru, Thailand, Turkey, and Bangladesh. Um, it's not really garnered the kind of publicity usually reserved for you know, Chinese ASAT tests and things like that, but in the long run it may prove to be one of its more enduring and influential creations. It's very tiny compared to such established uh, international bodies such as ESA, for example. And it's a very different kind of body. But um, I think it's, it's beginning to establish the kind of viable network uh, of <coughs> developing nations in Asia that could be potentially very influential. Uh, APSCO officially came into existence in 2005, but it's it built on a very long, long um, um, history of, of cooperative agreements and workshops that dating back to the early 90s. A large portion of APSCO's activities led by China include, uh, quote unquote, education and training in space technology and its applications. So China basically hosts these giant workshops for participants that come to China and they learn about remote sensing or certain aspects of uh, satellite development and satellite use. Um, and they also learn about uh, payload development. And, uh, um, there's um, uh, workshops on optical electronic systems and so forth, remote, remote sensing experiments. Um, and most importantly, they've laid the groundwork for actual building the satellite. Um, and these memorandum of understandings were signed in the late uh, 90s between several nations who were part of APSCO to build a small multi-mission satellite, which we also heard about, the SNMS. And it's, it's based on a three-axis satellite, Chinese satellite bus, and basically all these countries are producing instrumentation uh, that they'll put on the satellite. And the first two satellites in the series were evidently developed by China, Iran, and Thailand. Um, undoubtedly, one of the principal aims here is the projection of soft power. Um, and seen in this light, international overtures of the Chinese space program represent a small but key element of ch growing Chinese influence in the developing world. Um, now, the interesting thing to me is that there's also similar mechanisms, mechanisms in, in existence, as we heard, also driven by Japan, but also by India. In 1995, India sponsored the creation of the Center for Space Science and Technology Education in Asia, or CSSTEAP, Bharat uh, mentioned that, which helps train engineers and scientists from regional nations on the operation of space systems. 
uh, particularly focused on remote sensing and meteorology, which India has an, a lot of competence on. So like APSCO, basically, you go to India, you learn about these things, um, and um, there's 15 nations that are part of this project, and they're basically driven by uh, Indian uh, experts. Um, and there's very little overlap between APSCO and uh, CSSTEP in terms of membership. It's not like they're above there's a great degree of overlap. And of course, Japan has a similar organization, the Asian Pacific Space Agency, uh, APR, SAF, uh, uh, which does a very similar thing. We, they, and Japan has uh, instigated several new interesting projects like Central in Asia and SAFE, and are moving into payload development instead of just training. So these parallel initiatives, uh, China's APSCO, India's CSS, TEAP, and Japan's uh, APRSAF, suggest that Asian space cooperation, at least on one level, is fractured along uh, China, India, and Japan lines. I say that partly because the memberships do not completely overlap. They're uh, dis uh, distinct, uh, uh, a little, uh, mostly anyway. The overlaps in their respective, respective initiative, initiatives underscore the common goals, but the largely different constituency of each organization suggests that regional blocks of nations are fragmenting along the patronage of the three major space uh, powers. Uh, so the existence of competing organizations, I think, feeds a kind of competitiveness. But it also, I think, generates a kind of um, development mentality among smaller space nations. It's, it's, it's seemingly benign, but I think it embodies a different kind of Asian space race. Um, uh, but given its geopolitical and material implications, this may be a, a, a kind of a real uh, Asian space race played out quietly behind the glare of spectacular missions to the moon. So in conclusion, I'd just like to reemphasize my initial point that everything that we consider has regional implications beyond the big three. And that conversely, it's actually difficult, if not really impossible, to fully understand the motivations of each of the big three without accounting for smaller linkages that extend uh, beyond these nations' space programs, uh, beyond Asia, in fact, uh, globally. Um, the escalation of intelligence collection systems by the, space, by the three space powers and the troubling escalation of military combat systems, such as ASAPs in Asia, maybe demand a deeper engagement with these regional and global multilateral linkages. Thank you. Okay, um, before we open to questions, I have a quick, well, relatively quick question for the panel. Um, it was a great overview of the, you know, the three major Asian space powers and how they interact and not interact with each other. I'm curious to know where you guys think the United States fits in. Is it a possibility for the United States to, you know, going back to Cold War terms, utilize um, some competition from one country to get benefits with another? Is there room in the regional, you know, rivalry we've seen? For the United States to make sure its interests are overplayed. I mean, we are, this is a U.S. domestic audience, so uh, I'm hitting the U.S. perspective pretty uh, heavily. Or is it just one of those things where you know it is what it is, and if it works out, great for cooperation. But if not, so I don't know if you guys see well. Okay. Um, I think I'll have a very short response, and um, my response will be myopic. We can't live with you. We can't live without you. Okay, and as far. So we need the United States, India needs the United States as state-of-the-art technology and the organizational and the bureaucratic infrastructure is here. It's legible by means of English, by means of people-to-people -people contact and the way the societies function. So in that sense, United States is a very key partner. There are thorny issues between the India and the United States. Again, Indians don't forget anything, Americans don't remember it. So the sanctions regimes, you know, the 1970s, this is heavily in, embed, embedded in the mindset of the Indians. But that said, there is an overarching big picture view that's taken by the people and the political elites at the highest level. 
So the United States, in a broad overview, the United States presence in Asia, as far as the Indians are concerned, provides them with stability and a certain amount of certainty. They know, they know the U.S. is bad in some aspects, but they know how bad that is. What's the alternative? Or what, what could be worse than... Uh, the known devil is better than an unknown devil. So that's where the U.S. fits in this okay. equation. Um, I guess three quick points on that. The, the question came up of where this idea of an Asian space race came. And I think part of it was it, it originated, the idea of a space race was was there a space race between the U.S. and China? And that was when the U.S. still had plans to go back to the moon. Were we going to replay the 60s, which I argued was a silly idea to run a race that we'd already run uh, and, and won handily and run it again with the potential for losing uh, due, to, due to politics rather than technology. So I think, well, if it, there's not a U.S.-China space race, uh, maybe there's an Asian space race. And I think it played into it. It evolved in thinking that way. Um, Sometimes as well, cooperation, when it comes to cooperation, sometimes, as a, a colleague of mine puts it, sometimes U.S. friendship is just too hard. <laughs> um, we, I, I am firmly convinced the U.S. means well on most occasions, but can be pretty clumsy and difficult to work with. And uh, China gives them options. And China is not going around the world making bilateral uh, relationships using space as one of its tools for altruistic reasons. They are doing it for very self-serving reasons, resources, and I think um, other countries would do the same given the opportunity. And in fact, I think that's part of what we're seeing, what we talked about with the soft power challenges. And um, the third part of that when it comes to the United States is our domestic politics are sometimes our worst enemy in terms of being able to really yield our influence abroad. Um, the argument about should we work with China in space, well, my view is if you think China is a threat, then keep them close so you know what they're doing. If you think China isn't a threat, well, then work with them. But uh, neither one of those arguments seems to fly with our domestic politicians who sometimes use space relationships with China as um, as a symbol for other for feelings about other areas, not working with China in space, I think has nothing to do with space. It has more to do with other issues. So I think we can't underestimate how much domestic politics is going to get in the way of us doing uh, what is will be would be effective in terms of foreign policy, and that will be a hindrance. Thank you. Well, I, my if. We put bring the U.S. into the equation of the, you know, the space power balance in the uh, in Asia. It seems to be working pretty good for Japan and not for China and India. I mean, Japan has been always the ally of the United States, and the Japanese space program has been closely connected and cooperated with the United States from the beginning. Whereas China doesn't, and uh, India, I mean. As Barra said, I mean, in India had a sanction in 1970s, and then later on, I mean, in 2000, year 2000, gradually the, the relationship with the United States has built. So it works uh, in favor of Japan. And for example, if you look at the membership of the APUSCO, there is no, no, no U.S. 
the Indian organization, similar organization based on the U.S., but APR staff, U.S. is invited. So there's always the sort of a, a counterweight for Japan to cooperate. I mean, cooperation with the United States is the, is the sort of counterweight for the emergence of China or India. So in that sense, I think the, uh, the role of the United States helps uh, to, for Japan would be also beneficial to the United States or not, I don't know. But uh, for Japan, it is certainly yes. Uh, whether it's good, uh, it uh, provides a healthy competition, I think yes, because the Japanese capabilities for, for example, the manned space program are just acquired through the ISS program. And without that, I think the, uh, the parity between Japan and China cannot, cannot be achieved. So, again, I think that um, from Japanese perspective, the role of the United States is immensely important um, in to this cooperation competition uh, situation in Asia. I just had some brief comments that I think uh, from the U.S. perspective, um, each of the each of these countries pose different challenges. I mean, Japan is already very closely aligned with the U.S. In, with the International Space Station and other agreements. I think India and China pose very different kinds of challenges. Uh, India and the United States, there's been a kind of rapprochement in the last 10, 15 years, 10 years really, with the, the nuclear deal and so on and so forth. So there's been kind of a liberalization of, of if you will, of relationships on a defense and a technology level. So I think there has to be some sort of a, a, a kind of a reckoning of what happens here. Uh, and I think it, it will, something will happen, but, I, but it's, it's unclear what. With China, I think it's not so much a matter of choice. I think within 10, 15 years, the United States will have to confront this issue at some level, whether it's uh, through cooperation or any other way. Uh, within 10, 15 years, China, especially the human spaceflight program, will be very robust and very mature. And uh, it's, not un it's unclear to us right now where the U.S. space program will be in 10, 15 years. We don't really know. So I think at that point, uh, I think there, there, must, there will be a reckoning. Something has to happen. Thank you. Okay, questions from the audience. If you could please identify yourself. Uh, Peter Harrison, Air Force. So, uh, you know, what was curious to me was the tremendously state-centric approach that all of you guys took, and in particular any analysis of the United States, uh, where I, I personally don't see that as the dynamic aspect of what the United States is doing at all. And so not hearing any discussion about where manned spaceflight by the United States might go in terms of SpaceX and Bigelow and their deal on a, on a, a commercial space station um, was curious to me. Also, it was interesting to me that, that despite the fact that both the, the Indian traditional ideology and the Chinese uh, statements about uh, the, the long-term motivation for their lunar program all talk inherently about resources for development. No one mentioned the rather startling announcement by Space Resources about the, the billionaires to uh, seek out uh, asteroid mining. So I was curious, you know, that, that seems very much to be a, a non-issue in, in your discussion. And then the other uh, surprise for me was uh, in your discussion about Japan's movement we're trying to be more competitive, and the new space law, space strategy, um, uh, 
there is the discussion of uh, space solar power, and there was the announcement about the IHI Mitsubishi, uh, and that's something that Dr. Kalam has also talked about. Uh, and so that did not come up at all either, where you have two, uh, two fairly prominent, one a very prominent document, another a very prominent individual talking about that. Thoughts, responses? Not quite off the bat. Okay, I'll start. Uh, when I was talking about the United States being in a period of transition, that's exactly what I was talking about, the idea that we're trying to hand over low Earth orbit to the private sector so that NASA funds can be used for uh, uh, going on to exploration to areas we have not been to before. And while I think the private companies have come a long way and are showing great promise. It's not something that's going to, uh, it, it's something that the, this transition period is very worrisome. I mean, it's the opportunity, it's the window of opportunity for national programs like China, which has the political will. Well, human spaceflight is hard in democracies. When people get to vote, they don't vote on space. So as much as we support space, uh, the Chinese have the luxury of not having to really ask the population. But having said that, that moves right into the idea of resources and asteroid mining. Uh, a couple years ago, I was in China and had the opportunity to speak at some length with the former chief designer for their human spaceflight program. And what he really wanted to talk about was helium-3 because he had heard that NASA had been able to make an effective argument for exploration if they just talked about resources and mining, and they wanted to use that as well to try and sell it to their politicians. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a great selling point. It sounds really good, but it's not, it's, I don't think it's a, a short-term motivator. And I don't think it's a short-term uh, determining factor for what's going to happen in space over the next five to ten years. Over the long run, I hope so, because that will say that this whole transition will have been, will have been effective. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's going to be... Um, I think the discussion of resources is, is very good for attracting investors, and it's got a long way to go. Um, well, the question about the private space uh, initiatives, uh, that's a great threat for the Japanese idea of industrialization of space. I mean, it's, it's directly competing with the launching capability of Mitsubishi Heavy. Uh, the problem that is that the launcher strategy, although we have developed, well, the, the new transition of the space strategy is still uh, halfway through and um, we haven't really developed the uh, larger policies with regard to the changing nature of this emergence of the private industry. So basically uh, there is no answer yet. That's one of the reasons we haven't uh, touched upon. The space resources and space solar panel, these are two questions that can be answered in one answer. It's too expensive. Uh, well, as I said, I mean, the 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 main constraints that we are facing today is not the legal question, constitutional question, but the budgetary question. How much you pay, how much you get. I mean, space solar system, I don't know. I mean, it's going to be more than one trillion yen, which is about you know, a hundred um, million dollars, I don't know. Uh, basically, it's, it's too expensive for, to sell to the um, 
to the politicians as well as the uh, space resources, helium-3. I mean, how much it costs to go to the moon and dig up and take back the helium-3 and use it? I mean, they, unless there is no moon base program or anything. So uh, I think the cost uh, benefit analysis doesn't really pay for the, for the politicians. Other questions? Yes. Tiffany Chow, Secure Foundation. Uh, so going back to domestic politics, Joan, you mentioned um, in your remarks that uh, the congressional legislation that we have that blocks our cooperating with China on space um, is confusing to them. Um, and I know that too many in the United States, the domestic politics surrounding space policy decision making, especially in China and India, can be very confusing, opaque, um, not transparent. Um, but then obviously these things play a very large role in um, the way that states interact with others internationally and I think can very much exacerbate the potential for misunderstanding, misperception, miscommunication. Um, so do you have, or does any, do any of the panelists have any recommendations for ways to make domestic politics or decision making more transparent to um, external actors, to international partners or potential adversaries? Um, or is it just really, I mean, is it too complex to really... You want to start? Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll address it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it was just... Um, I had a conversation with one of the very, a very senior official, and her thing was, oh, I'm going to the United States, and I wanted to meet my counterpart. And they told me, which one do you want to meet? We have three out here. Okay? So it... I think this is this is at a this is at a root this is a root level problem. The civil servants in India, civil servants with the way the society functions are generalists. Here you have specialists. You have the arms control and verification. For example, India is the, minist the Ministry of External Affairs. You have the Disarmament and International Security Division, which is manned by four people, one Joint Secretary and three gen generalist officers. And recently, they've started taking one guy from the military here. here. And this is an artifact of the society. The civil service examination has come under severe criticisms for this because the reforms are long overdue. This is an artifact of how these societies function. I'm not sure if there is a. Uh, the, I'm not sure if there is any solution right off the bat. But this is um, this is this is changing. One primary example is the prime minister is an economist, and you see is advisors at the highest levels being economists. The last, the recent advisor just said, what are you doing with the economy? You're screwing it up. Mm -hmm. And the Prime Minister said, well, why don't you come and work with us? But this, this has happened at the highest level. So there's this whole bureaucracy that has to shift. And until that happens, you and I will be old. <laughs> um, I guess I would, I would start by saying this is like Jay Leno's piece, jaywalking. You know, um, it's it's too complicated. It's I, for years I taught American government 101 and trying to get American students to understand that there is presidential policy, then there's Congress who funds the policy, and there's authorization and appropriation, and there uh, you know people's eyes glaze over and roll back. And um, last year I had the opportunity to give a series of lectures in Chinese universities, and it was supposed to be on space policy. And it ended up being on American Government 101 because it's very hard for them to understand. Well, your president says he wants to have a more cooperative space program. NASA can't talk to us, so the president's lying. 
No, that just means that there is one member of Congress, one member of Congress who is holding this up. No, that can't be. <laughs> yes, trust me, it can. So um, I don't think most Americans understand most of our government workings in any depth. And I think it, you add on different systems from other countries that are trying to see our country through their prism, through a, a, a more bureaucratic prism. A um, couple of, 20 years ago, I, when I was working in Japan writing my book, we, I had an individual talk to me about the legal differences of the United States and Japan, and the, he explained to me the infamous Tamamushi Agreement, <laughs> which said nothing but satisfied the legal bureaucracies on both sides. You know, it was, it, it's, it's too hard. Do you have anything to add? No, I would just say, yeah, I mean, we don't really understand. Most, most people here don't really understand how things work in terms of the space um, and appropriations in NASA. But I think there is a perception, and maybe this, this is anecdotal evidence, but there's a perception um, that the NASA administrator is perhaps weaker than perhaps the other agency heads. And this is anecdotal evidence, talking to people from India and uh, Japan and China. But uh, it just partly because the, his hands are hurt. If there ever is a, a tie in, certain, in terms of all sorts of structures. Can you say perceived as being weaker as U.S. agency heads or his yeah, counterparts? The, the, yeah, no, the, the perception is that the NASA administrator would be weaker in terms of his ability to act because his hands are tied with all sorts of other concerns. I think that's right. Yeah. 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 Other questions? Yes. Hi, I'm uh, Bruce McDonald with the uh, United States Institute of Peace. I was uh, glad to hear uh, the subject of missile defense uh, come up, and it, it was not strictly speaking space per se, but it very strongly intrudes at the edge of space. And uh, I wanted to, to me, one of the real concerns is that, particularly now with India developing the long range uh, Agni uh, missile that there is some possibility that you can see some competition in missile defense, not necessarily that it might be effective, but for domestic, again, domestic politics uh, raises its ugly head uh, all over the world, and nobody should be shocked at that, that uh, there could be a domestic political reason why China might want to develop a missile defense against uh, India, uh, irrespective of whether it's effective or not, but just to show that they're they're doing everything to protect the uh, Chinese people. And of course, if that happens, and India has been rather openly talked about uh, missile defense against China, although I've, I've heard a lot of talk and I'm not seeing much of, of you know, where the rubber hits the road. Uh, but uh, to me, of course, the big worry is that China decides that it needs to, for domestic global reasons, to deploy at least some minor uh, missile defense. And I've designed and taken part in a couple of exercises related to this. Um, uh, that there's then a real concern uh, about what happens, what what might the United States response be, and so my question is not to, you know we could talk all afternoon about about the totality of that, but rather to say is from the panelist's perspective, what do you see as the uh, possibility of a near-term development uh, of missile defense, either by India against China, China against India, or or both. Uh, uh, together, given the given the uh, the challenge that the long range missiles now have. Strand this end. Oh, um, well, India has already been testing its system for a while, 
I don't know, Eric probably knows more about the success of any of but I, I would just say that uh, I think, um, yeah, I think what you're saying is a plausible scenario, I think, that uh, the, China, the Chinese could develop something that, and certainly they have the capabilities to, but... Well, they have would, that 2010 test. Yes, exactly. So I, I think the, the one thing that I would add is, um, as a footnote, is that the other player who might play a part in this uh, situation is Russia, because... Uh, uh, Chinese yes. missiles right. were originally, you know, sort of developed in the 60s and 70s. That their primary sort of war gaming opponent was Russia, and so I, I think Russia wants to factor into. Well, no, no. I mean, J Japan has already uh, involved in the theory of missile defense, so basically, uh, that should um, be yeah, it's it's settled. It's basically against the uh, North Korean missile launch, but uh, potentially uh, from. Um, just two quick points. First, I don't think we'll see any, I don't think we'll ever see in the future another ASAP test. We will see lots of missile defense tests. I think that with, with Burnt Frost, the other countries of the world went, ah, okay, now we know how to do this and have it, have it be. Of course, there's absolutely no connection between the two, right? Absolutely. <laughs> but, and the other point is, it's going to be very awkward for the United States because India already is developing a missile defense capability, and if China says we're going to, and since now the U.S. has it, India, Japan, all these other countries have it, and that's okay. In fact, it's good. It's, it's a moral imperative. But if China wants it, we're going to object. That's going to be very difficult. Mm -hmm. I have a slightly different update. First, take DRDO's statement with a bucket of salt. I'm sorry, what? Oh. Take DRDO's statements and claims with a bucket of salt, not even a grain of salt, but with a bucket of salt. <laughs> Um, okay. Next is Agni 5, if you look at it very carefully, um, predated to April 2012 this year, the government has announced a hefty budget for space security, almost in the tune of $1 billion a year. Okay? So this money is up for grabs inside India. So Agni 5 was launched, and look at the number of marketing capabilities that Agni 5 can do. Agni 5 can do missile defense can do ASAT test, and can do operationally responsive space. Okay, that's how that's been marketed, Agni 5. And so here is an agency which is coming to you and telling, hey, you know, space security, put this discussion into a bigger context. India has to do space security. That is a, that is a done deal, but who does it? So DRDO does it. DRDO puts its hands up. No other agency can do it. We have the competence, competence and we can do these things. So. So this is how, place it into this context. And the missile defense can always be justified. Missile defense, missile defense was part of the 2000, 2001 agreement with the United States saying, you know, we need an insurance policy, policy against Pakistan. Um, they can, the nuclear deterrence under the terrorism cover. So Pakistan comes and attacks us, does these attacks like Mumbai, how do we respond? And missile defense offers us a suitable way, at least a false sense of security for us to protect us. But is it a real program in India? What, missile defense? Missile defense. Yes, yeah. it is a program in India. That's, that's Leading to looking to deploy something capable of uh, intercepting at least an intermediate range missile. That's, a, that's at least a plan. Whether what DRDO does, how much data it releases, is extremely, it's an opaque organization. But it's spending real money to do that. Yeah, and it's not spending. just on the No, 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 it is spending real money to do that. So, and, and I think this will, you will see this as an increase. Like, so the Aerospace Command wants missile defense, you know, and it's, 
and its framework, including uh, early warning satellites. So these are, if you yeah, yeah, if you go to the Air Force offices, if you go around the Air Force, they'll tell you that. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> really quickly. All right. Uh, Colin. Uh, Colin Clark, AOL Defense. Um, we've talked about a lot of bits and pieces, and to I think an American, especially somebody with a national security perspective, standing outside, it's sort of okay. Well, what does all this amount to? Um, which is, I guess, again, the is there an Asian space race, and are we part of it? Um, leaving aside who's going to get to the moon next, you know, I'm not sure who really cares about that per se, um, aside from the Chinese new guys. Um, already been there, done that. Um, but what does what is the stake between the United States, India, I mean, Japan, where allies? Okay, fine. And uh, China. I mean, is there a race? Yes, no. Uh, what Leaving aside, you know, civil aid exploration. I mean, there's, I, I think some of the people, some of our colleagues in India would disagree with the race because they'd say, what are we competing for, a bronze medal? Who wants to compete for a bronze medal? <laughs> uh, that's number one. But I think this also has to be put into perspective. Uh, one, ISRO today has this mindset that we have given so much to the nation. Why don't we do something for ourselves? If you're an organization, you're a company, you know, you said, okay, I've catered to the services of this nation so far. Why don't I reward myself by these moon missions? The next thing, the budget, ISRO, if you, if you look, if you watch the news closely, ISRO has been criticized of underspending, not overspending. It has money and it cannot spend. They've, 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 they've delayed themselves in deliverables and projects. So there is money for, for, for executing some of these missions, and why not you know, do these fancy missions sometimes? So I don't think there is necessarily a race. Um, there, is a, there is a China factor, but I think you have to put that China factor into the other factors. It's one factor. It's not the main factor. We're getting close on time, so I'm asked for quick responses. Okay, I would say rather than characterizing it as a space security race, there is a security dilemma, and I think the points brought up by Asif and Bruce really pointed out that it's not just a matter of what's going on in Asia. It's a matter of what India does will influence what Pakistan does, will influence what Iran does, will influence what Israel does. So there is this, there is this spread of technology that is going to potentially, as was brought up, including missile defense, that's going to result in actions and reactions that could have a very spiraling and exacerbating effect on geopolitics. Is that Basically, people use um, space as a sort of to, to contextualize, uh, to to bring or to achieve its own goal. So JAXA brings the uh, space race just in order to get more funding for the programs which are considered as a space race, so moon mission or manned space mission. But I think the Japanese cannot afford to to race. So we are. We may go to the Paralympics, but the The U.S. is not in a race with anything. I mean, in terms of competence, technology, capability, that's not the issue. I think that. But I would say, just agree with you that the space race is very useful for all sorts of political purposes. Oh, there's this thing going on in Asia. What can we do about it? And if, then you plug it into the security dilemma. Like you just 
Okay, we are running on time, so really quick question, question, quick response, and that's it. Okay, so really quickly, um, Asian countries part of code of conduct, and where does Australia fit into your considerations, Asif? Uh, I, I would just talk about Australia. Yeah, Australia definitely fits in, but I think it's it maybe at a point where, um, again, uh, it's, it's operating at a level slightly below the mature powers, so I think, but certainly I think Australia fits into the conversation in terms of Pacific Asian relationships. Well, code of conduct, we are in the talk of international code of conduct, so I think we Japan is the Asian side. Um, Australia, yes, I, I think there is a lot of com complementary uh, uh, role of Australia as a South Hemisphere and the uh, great uh, potential users for space, and then they are um, engaging in SSA. So I think the, uh, the, the Australia is not a rival to Japan or nor China or India, uh, but I think it's it can be a sort of um, go-between of every countries, and perhaps Australia may have a potential as a moderator of the Asian Space Corporation. Uh, but I think, to some extent, ideologically speaking, I mean, um, may lean towards the U.S. alliance too much, and may perhaps uh, we well, can be a friends of Japan, but not a friends, good friends with China and India. So perhaps it's still, I mean, it's hard to judge at this moment how Australia play in this, uh, in this context. Thank you. Joan? Uh, I think the United States in particular is making a real concerted effort to make sure that Asian views are being considered with code of conduct. But again, as I mentioned with China, I think they're really being standoffish because they're in the middle of this power transition, though I, I think they're studying a perspective. So I... Uh, the next year, year and a half, is going to be real critical to see what happens. As far as Australia goes, love my Australian colleagues. They've been about to launch a major space initiative for about 25 years now. <laughs> I hope this one, I hope, I hope the little bird flies this time. It probably won't. I was just talking with a senior Aussie official, and they're doing a white paper for all of defense. So I think you can probably assume it's going to vanish. The code of conduct actually is one uh, instrument that's been taken very seriously by the Indians at the highest levels, you know, from the from the prime minister's office. So, 
but there is a growing realization amongst the Indians that while code of conduct might not be the solution to all problems, uh, and they, they really acknowledge that uh, when things such as pride, national security, and political interest goes, go, initiatives like the code of conduct will go out the window. But it's a useful opportunity for them to communicate their views and air their concerns to the friends and allies. This is the only way they can, they think that they can communicate these issues in a civilized manner. So that's where they put, they take it seriously, but it's got to be in perspective. In Australia, the Prime Minister was there in India 10 days ago, selling uranium, which he did not see 10 years ago. And while space is not part of the discussion, I don't see why not. Okay. Well, with that, I'd like to please ask you to join me in thanking the panel for a fascinating discussion. And I just want to sell really quick. Our next event will be December 3rd. We'll be looking at post-election consequences for U.S. space policy. So we look forward to seeing you guys all then. Thank you.